Chapter 4, Job Safety and Environmental Safety. Safety at the construction site must be one of the highest priorities for the construction company. Failure to address this issue in a comprehensive manner could result in employee and employer losses and legal consequences that could be disastrous to the company. The responsibility for the safety and the health for everyone involved in the project belongs to the contractor with the assistance of employees and all others who are involved in the construction project. Value of Safety Safety first should not be a merely a slogan. It should be a fully developed and implemented plan involving all of the company's employees and its subcontractors. The plan must be initiated, approved, and supported at the highest levels in the company. It is very important that the plan be in a place before a project begins. Elements of the plan should con- include safety committees, training by safety consultants and experts, safety meetings, and effective communication to everyone through bulletins, notices, and posters. Federal, state, local, and company safety regulations must be fully understood by all and posted in areas that allow them to be readily seen and referred to with the goal of zero accidents. A good safety program that identifies safety problems and provides the means for correcting them is an ongoing process that should be updated and upgraded on a continuing basis. In addition, hazardous or unsafe conditions on the job may require immediate action beyond any formal regulations. Employees can be in the front line defense against unsafe conditions and practices. The benefits of a well-developed safety program are many and include increased worker time on the job due to few injuries and fatalities, increased availability of skilled and trained workers, lower medical expenses for both the contractor and the employees in the form of reduced workers, compensation costs, and other insurance premiums, as well as fewer out-of-pocket expenses, Less downtime due to equipment breakdown or damage, reduced downtime and costs associated with fines and citations due to violations of rules and regulations, fewer lawsuits and liability issues, and improved company image that could result in increased business. In summary, the accrued benefits result in improved employee relations and greater company profits. There are many resources available for obtaining information and guidance in the area of construction safety and health. For example, the Construction Industry Institute's Institute, CII, established in 1983, is an organization of leading owner, owners, contractors, and suppliers. A major goal of the group is the improvement of safety in the construction industry. The CII can be contacted at all kinds of things. Occupational Safety and Health Act, OSHA. The Occupational Safety and Health Act, OSHA, of 1970, was created to ensure safe and healthful working conditions for employees in a private sector. 28 states have automatically adopted this law, while the remaining 22 discretionary states have the option of adopting the OSHA rule, publishing their own regulations, or developing voluntary guidelines for state and local employees. State and local governments which adopt their own safety and health plans must make sure that they are at least least as effective as the federal law. For specific information concerning the states, OSHA law refer to Chapter 9 Business Requirements. OSHA Safety Programs According to 29 CFF 1926, employers should take advantage of safety programs provided by OSHA. In addition, the employers must comply with any specific regulations that apply to work in dangerous or potentially dangerous areas, provide instruction for employees in the safe handling and use of hazardous materials, and make them aware of specific requirements in 29 CFR 1926, and provide instruct- 
protection for employees and safe handling or use of poisons, caustics, and other harmful substances and make them aware of the potential hazards, personal hygiene, and personal protective measures required. OSHA plays a critical role in supporting the Department of Labor Dole Quality Workplaces goal by carrying out programs designed to save lives, prevent injuries and illnesses, and protect the health of workers. These programs include developing guidance and standards for occupational safety and health, inspecting places of employment and working for employers and employees, offering consultation services to small businesses, providing compliance assistance, outreach, education, and other cooperative programs for employers and employees, providing matching grants to assist states in administering consultation projects and approved occupational safety and health enforcement programs, and fostering relationships with other agencies and organizations in order to address critical safety and health issues. OSHA Training Institutes, OTI. OSHA has established regional training centers that offer courses which train workers and employers to recognize avoid and prevent safety and health hazards in their workplaces. Many OTI education centers offer new training methods to help employers reduce work-related injuries and illnesses and in turn result in positive impact on the company's bottom line. These centers are incorporating web-based learning known as blended learning. Students who enroll in blended learning must complete a web-based training portion of the course before attending the resident training portion of the course. Training centers across the United States make classes available in many regions. For a listing of regional training sites and to obtain specific information about their location, course offerings, and schedules, access the OSHA website. The OSHA Office of Training and Education Training Resources can be contacted for additional information or to enroll students. The registration office can be reached at their number. OSHA Strategic Partnership Program the OSHA Strategic Partnership Program for Worker Safety and Health, OSPP, and an expansion of OSHA's pre previous experience with voluntary programs. In carrying out this program, OSHA enters into an extended voluntary relationship with groups of employers, employees, employee representatives, or sometimes only one employer to assist them and to recognize their efforts to eliminate serious hazards and achieve a high level of worker safety and health. Most of the partnering work sites are small businesses with an average of 22 workers. Many of these partnerships include business in the construction industry. Outreach materials on OSHA's website. OSHA's website provides extensive information about the agency as well as explanations about the standards. A 44-page booklet entitled All About OSHA can be found on their website. The site also includes eTools interactive software which information about specific health and safety topics are in regulation. OSHA also produces Quick Takes, a bi-monthly e-news memo filled with timely information, updates, and results about safety and health in America's workplaces. Subscriptions are free and can be ordered on the website. In addition, OSHA's website includes several special features. Spanish language pages that provide workplace safety and health information in Spanish. Small business page designed to increase OSHA awareness among small business owners. Workers page that explains workers' rights and responsibilities. And teen workers page that addresses safety and health issues for workers under 18. Recording and reporting occupational 
injuries. The Occupational Safety and Health Act, OSHA, requires that employee employers investigate and report all work-related injuries. This includes occupational diseases and unusual unusual occurrences that may have resulted from unsafe exposure to hazards. The Act specifies the OSHA office where the information must be sent. The time limits for reporting work-related deaths and at and the time limits for reporting accidents involving multiple numbers of employees. OSHA requires the employers follow the guidelines mandated by law in determining whether a worker is an employee or an independent contractor. This determines who must keep records and could also determine the size of a small company and its requirements for recording injuries and illnesses. Additional information concerning distinctions between employees and independent contractors can be found in Chapter 3, Labor Management, in the section entitled Employee versus Independent Contractor. Contractors with 10 or fewer employees do not have to keep injury and illness records unless specifically requested to do so by the Bureau of Labor Statistics but most report accidents or hospitalizations that involve three or more workers. In either case, a report must be made to OSHA within eight hours of the incident. Contractors having more than 10 employees must maintain records of all work-related injuries and illnesses, regardless of how minor. OSHA record-keeping forms. Copies of three OSHA forms used by the employees for record-keeping have been included in this chapter immediately following this section. These are... Form 30, 300, Form 300, Log of Work-Related Injuries and Illnesses, Form 300 is filled out when work-related injuries or illnesses occur. Information required on this includes personal information of the workers being reported and the severity of the injuries or occupational illnesses. Each incident must be logged on this form within six days from which the employer learns out the injury or illness. The employer must keep this form for five years. For each of the incidents reported on this form, a separate form, Form 301, Injuries and Illnesses Incident Report, must be filled out and filed. Form 300A, Summary of Work-Related Injuries and Illnesses. Form 300A is used to report an annual summary of the injuries and occupational illnesses that occurred during the year and must be prepared even if they were no even if there were no injuries or occupational illnesses. Form 301 Injuries and Illnesses Incident Report. Form 301 is one of the first forms that must be filled out when a recordable work-related injury or illness has occurred and must be filled out within 7 calendar days from notification of the injury or illness. For more detailed information, an employer may obtain a copy of record-keeping guidelines for the occupational injuries and the illnesses from the United States Department of Labor, and the website is on this paper. And the next few pages are the forms. OSHA 29 CFR 1904, Recording and Reporting Occupational Injuries. One specific part of the federal OSHA law is 29 CFR 1904, Recording and Reporting Occupational Injuries, which has particularly it has particular significance for the construction industry, industry because the type of work performed can lead to injuries if proper safety rules are not implemented and followed. When work-related injuries or illnesses do occur, occur, the contractor must be aware of OSHA's reporting requirements in order to fulfill them and to avoid paying larger penalties. 
The following information was summarized from 29 CFR 1904 Recording and Reporting Occupational Injuries. Recording criteria. Each employer is required to keep records of fatalities, injuries, and illnesses that are work-related or are new cases and meet OSHA's recording requirements. Any work-related fatality must be reported to OSHA within eight hours. In order to keep an injury or illness that results in death, the employer must enter a check mark on the OSHA 300 log in the space noted for record recording incidents resulting in death. Basic requirements. To meet the basic requirements, the employer must consider that an injury or illness is recordable if it results in any of the following. Death, days away from work, restricted work or transfer to another job, medical treatment beyond first aid or loss of consciousness, or a significant injury or illness diagnosed by a physician or other licensed healthcare professional. Decision th tree. The decision tree for recording work-related injuries and illnesses shown below in figure 4-4 illustrates the steps involved in deciding whether a worker's injury or illness is recordable. And there's a whole bunch of questions on it. If you want to look at them, read the book or look through the book. Determining work-relatedness. The employer must consider an injury or illness to be work-related if an event or exposure in the work environment either caused or contributed to the resulting condition or significantly aggravated or pre-existing injury or illness. If an employee is involved in a work-related travel, injuries and illnesses that occur are considered work-related if, at the time of the injury or illness, the employee was engaged in work activities. There are some exceptions, as noted in 1904, where an injury or illness occurs in the work environment but is not considered work-related, refer to CFR 1904 for expectations or exceptions. Determining new cases. An employer must consider an injury or illness to be a new case if the employee had not previously experienced a recorded injury or illness at the same type that affects the same part of the body or had previously experienced a recorded injury or illness of the same type that affected the same part of the body but had not recovered completely. OSHA Penalties OSHA personnel often make on-site inspections. Violations of the safety law can result in citations being issued and penalties being assessed. Penalties can range from $1,000 to $70,000. Among the violations for which OSHA will assess penalties are failure to maintain or provide access to records, report injuries or illnesses, maintain logs, post OSHA, or state posters or notices, or provide honest information. OSHA Civil Penalties Policy The following information has been summarized from the OSHA document entitled The New OSHA Civil Penalties Policy to provide information necessary for compliance with the OSHA requirements. A seven-fold increase in the maximum limits for OSHA civil monetary penalties was Stipulated in the Budget Reconciliation Act passed by the 101st Congress. The maximum allowable penalty is now $70,000 for each willful or repeated violation and $7,000 for each serious and other than serious violation, as well as $7,000 for each day beyond a stated abatement date for failure to correct a violation. The amounts are ceiling for ceiling. The amounts are ceilings, not floors. 
However, in order to ensure that most flagrant violators are in fact fined at an effective level, a minimum penalty of 5000 for each for a willful violation of the OSH Act was adopted. The new penalty policy will be applicable to all citations issues as a result of inspections initiated after March 1, 1991. For violations occurring after November 5, 1990, the effective date of the Budget Reconciliation Act. The new policy also applies to those states with OSHA-approved state occupational safety and health programs under the congressional direction that these states' plan must be at least as effective as the national plan. The participating states are being given a reasonable period to implement the new penalty structure which takes into account the state's legislative calendars. Adjustment Factors Employers could qualify for the full 25% good faith reduction of the penalty if they have written and implemented safety and health programs such as given in OSHA's Voluntary Safety and Health Management Guidelines. Federal Register, Volume 54, Number 16, January 26, 1989, paragraphs 3, 3904-3916, and that includes programs required under the OSHA standards such as hazard communication, lockout, tagout, or safety and health programs for construction required in CFR 29-1926.20. Serious violations. A serious violation is defined as one in which there is a substantial probability that death or serious physical harm could result and the employer knew or should have known of the hazard. Regulatory violations. Regulatory violations involve violations of posting, injury and illness reporting, and record-keeping requirements, and not telling employees about advance notice of inspection. Here are the base penalties before adjustments to be proposed for posting requirement violations, OSHA notice, $1,000, annual summary, $1,000, and failure to post citations, $3,000. Base reporting and record-keeping penalties are as follows. Failure to maintain OSHA 200 and OSHA 101 forms are $1,000. Failure to report a fatality or catastrophe within 48 hours is $5,000 with the provision that the OSHA regional administrator could adjust up that up to $7,000 in exceptional circumstances. Denying access to the records is $1,000 and not telling employees about advance notice of an inspection is $2,000. Willful violations. In the case of a willful serious violations, the initial proposed penalty has to be between $5,000 and $70,000. OSHA calculates the penalty for the underlying serious violation, adjusts, adjusts it for the size and history, and multiplies it by 7. The multiplier of 7 can be adjusted upward or downward at the OSHA regional administrator's discretion, discretion if circumstances warrant the minimum willful serious penalty is 5000 Willful violations are those committed with an intentional disregard of or plain indifference to the requirements of the OSH Act and regulations. Repeat violations. A repeat violation is a violation of any standard regulation, rule, 
or order whereupon reinspection a substantially similar vi violation is found. Repeat violations will only be adjusted for size, and the adjusted penalties will then be multiplied by 2, 5, or 10. The multiplier for small employers, 205 employees or fewer, is 2. For the first instance of a repeat violation, and 5 for the second repeat. However, the OSHA regional administrator has the authority to use a multiplication factor up to 10 on a case involving a repeat violation by a small employer to achieve the necessary deterrent effect. The multiplier for large employers, 25, or 250 or more employees, is 5 for the first instance of a repeat violation and 10 for the second repeat. If the initial violation was other than serious, without a penalty being assessed, then the penalty will be $200 for the first repetition of the violation, $500 for the second repeat, and $1,000 for the third repeat. Failure to abate. Failure to correct a prior violation within the prescribed abatement period could result in a, a penalty for each day the violation continues beyond the abatement date. In these failure to abate cases, the daily penalty will be equal to the amount of the initial penalty up to $7,000. This failure to abate penalty may be assessed for a maximum of 30 days by the OSHA area office. In cases of partial abatement of the violation, the OSHA Regional Administrator has authority to reduce the penalty by 25% to 75%. If the failure to abate is more than 30 days, it may be referred to the OSHA National Office in Washington, where a determination will be made to assess a daily penalty beyond the initial 30 days. Reference. The information about civil penalties is attended as a general description only and does not carry the force of legal opinion. This information can also be accessed in the following ways via phone message and the OSHA um, website. OSHA regulations for hazardous materials. Hazardous material materials and chemicals used in construction industry are governed by OSHA regulations. State and local laws may also apply. Studies have been conducted which have shown that if there are c these chemicals and materials are not used according to the manufacturer's instructions, they may cause illnesses such as cancer, respiratory ailments, or skin problems. Material Safety Data Sheets, MSDS, slash Safety Data Sheets, SDS. Material Safety Data Sheets, M MSDS or Safety Data Sheets SDS, are safety information sheets prepared by manufacturers and marketers for materials that are suspected of being hazardous or for chemicals containing toxic ingredients. MSDS slash SDS will at times be included with the materials or can be obtained by requesting them from the manufacturer or marketer. Employers are responsible for ensuring that the MSDS slash SDS are available on the job site. OS H. Regulations cover both storage and the use of materials and chemicals. Some of these substances are asbestos, tar-based products, vinyl chloride, various cleaning compounds, gasoline, etc. Products requiring MSDS sheets include such common items such as paints, caulking material, I don't know how to say that, drywall finishing compounds, mud, etc., Additional information about the OSHA Hazard Communication Guideline for Compliance, which identifies hazardous chemicals in the workplace and guidelines for compliance, can also be found at Hazard Communication Guidelines for Compliance at the OSHA 
website. MSDS slash SDS may seem complicated and difficult to understand at first, but they are reliable resources provided by the manufacturers for finding necessary information about handling chemicals safely. For this reason, it is important for all individuals who are involved with a construction project to be able to use the resource to work more safely. The following table provides a short summary of the purpose of each section on MSDS slash SDS to explain how the information on the sheet can help workers use hazardous materials more safely. This thing shows section numbers and purposes, but there is a lot. So if you have time to read the book or look through the book, that is recommended because that is too many for me to read and you wouldn't understand it if I read it. MSDS websites. There are many websites that provide examples of completed MSDS forms. One of these sites is Chemicals, see Appendix A, and it's this long um, website thing. Some important safety procedures that should be followed in the construction industry when dangerous materials are used include these preventative actions. Hazardous materials should be stored in well-marked closed containers with proper ventilation for both the container and the area in which it is stored. Signs should be posted to indicate the possible danger involved and information about what should be done in case of an accident or spill. All employees who are authorized to handle the materials must be trained properly. This training must be part of the safety program and would include the appropriate posting of warnings and the means of communication. Appropriate clothing and equipment must be available to both employees and visitors who work around or in or enter any area containing dangerous materials. This personal protect, protective equipment would include face masks and goggles and other equipment such as respirators. Special equipment such as portable oxygen and defibrillators must also be considered. Equipment bleh. Equipment necessary for rapid cleanup should be available as well as disposable means for whatever is recovered and notices must be posted with information about who to contact including phone numbers and the circumstances under which various agencies should be notified. OSHA Hazard Communication Standard The purpose of OSHA's Hazard Communication Standard 29 CFR 1910 1200 is to ensure that the hazards of all the chemicals produced or imported are evaluated and that information concerning their possible danger is made known to the employers and employees. Topics covered include responsibilities of employers, terminology used by OSHA in the standard and other regulations, when employers must evaluate and identify hazardous materials, details of written hazard program that should be developed by the employer, labels, tags, and or making markings required on containers of hazardous materials, complete information about material safety data sheets, MSDS, and employee training information. To find more detailed information, there is a website. Company Safety Program and Manual. Any contractor whose company hires employees should develop a safety program and maintain an up-to-date manual covering employee safety procedures and policies. It is important that the information be explained clearly and completely in, in order to limit the company's future liabilities. Safety Manual Generally, the contractor's insurance provider will require an industry-improved safety program for policies that cover general liability and workers' compensation issues. The insurers believe that widespread use of safety manuals in the industry will provide a focus on safety that will reduce accidents and injuries and thus help to contain both financial losses and losses in productivity. 
A company that provides a properly maintained safety manual to its employee can often receive discounts on premium costs for its insurance providers. These percentage discounts can be significant. Often, there can be additional incentives in the form of rebates for long-term successful safety results. For that reason alone, a contractor should plan to put out a great deal of thought and effort into developing and maintaining the company safety program. The heart of any safety program is the com company safety manual. There are a number of ways to acquire an industry-approved safety manual. Many insurance providers will supply the contractor with basic safety policy that can be adapted to suit the company's needs. Many small or new companies find that it is a very helpful way to establish a safety program. These companies might also use one of the many books that outline safety programs. This type of information is also often available from federal state and local agencies. Owners of small or new companies can use the information to develop a comprehensive safety manual tailored to meet their needs. Larger companies often have considerably more exposure to liability and might have one or more individuals managing their safety programs, including writing and updating their own in-house manuals on a full-time basis. Most insurance companies will even require that a contractor include a safety manual for subcontractors with their subcontractor agreement. Typically, the contra contractor's attorney will recommend that they do this. Generally, the safety manual for both employees and subcontractors will cover the following primary areas. Subcontractor or employee responsibilities. Accident management. Employee safety orientation slash training requirements, personal protective equipment, safety meetings, hazardous material communication requirements, fall protection plan, basic safety rules, acceptance agreement, and an appendix of forms. An approved safety program will require that the safety manual be given to all new hires. It is advisable to require new employees to sign an agreement before a Assign an agreement form before they start work. The agreement should indicate that the employees have received a copy of the safety manual and that they have read it before beginning working. Environmental safety. Environmental protection and the safety have become important factors in our modern society. Contractors need to be mindful of these issues, especially in two major areas. One, protecting the environment in which they work is being done, and two, providing a safe environment for their workers who are doing the job. Before starting a project, contractors should become aware of the environmental regulations that apply to protecting the site as well as those that apply to their workers and all others who are involved in the project. In some situations, contractors can be held responsible for environmental damage even if they are unaware that their actions caused the damage. That is another reason why is it is important that they train all their employees to follow sound environmental practices and to ensure that their subcontractors follow these practices as well. Most jurisdictions have enacted regulations covering burning noise and dust pollution and sedimentation control. The contractor should have a plan in place to lessen pollution, use resources wisely, and protect workers. They can design the project to preserve the natural elements of the site wherever possible, communicate and emphasize the need for safe environmental practices to all parties, avoid the use of hazardous or toxic materials, 
Be careful of energy usage for operating and maintaining equipment. Use recycled materials if possible, and ensure that waste generated on a project is properly disposed of according to federal and state regulations. The consequences of not having an environmental plan or ensuring that all personnel follow it could create a tremendous liability for the company, which might even result in the company's financial downfall. Environmental Protection Agency, EPA. The Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, is responsible for enforcing and assuring compliance with the environmental regulations and may delegate this responsibility to state governments. EPA's enforcement efforts focus on assisting businesses and communities with compliance training and guidance. The EPA's mission is to protect human health and the environment. Some of the areas for which governmental regulations and and or restrictions have been imposed include air quality, water quality, hazardous materials, solid waste disposal, and underground storage tank removal. For information about state environmental protection regulations, refer to Chapter 9, Business Requirements. Air Quality Although the 1990 Clean Air Act is a federal law covering the entire United States, the states do much of the work to carry out the act. For example, a state air pollution agency has the authority to fine a company for violating air pollution limits. Under this law, the EPA sets limits for the amount of allowable pollutant in air anywhere in the United States. The law allows individual states to have stronger pollution controls, but states are not allowed to have weaker pollution controls (coughs) than those set by the EPA. For contractors, a major air quality concern is the dust produced during construction that adds to the particulate matter in the air creating air pollution. A simple solution to this problem is to wet the site down as much as necessary to keep air pollution from dust to a minimum. Inspectors who discover a problem on a site may respond in several ways depending on the severity of the problem. These enforcement actions might include warnings, corrective action measures, compliance orders, stop orders, or fines. Water Quality The National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System, NPDES, permit program authorized by the Clean Water Act, controls water pollution by regulating point sources that discharge pollutants into United States waters. Point sources are such things as pipes or man-made ditches. Storm water runoff from construction activities can have a significant impact on water quality, contributing sediment and other pollutants exposed at construction sites. The MPDES stormwater program requires operators of both large and small construction sites to obtain authorization to discharge stormwater under an MPDES construction stormwater permit. The contractors need to be especially aware that the solvents and other chemicals used in construction are not allowed to pollute the ground or water at or near the construction site. The development and implementation of stormwater pollution prevention plans is the focus of NPDES stormwater permits for large and small construction activities. In most cases, the NPDES permit program is administered by authorized states. Many jurisdictions have passed erosion and wetland protection guidelines. It is important that the responsible individuals on the site are aware of all regulations concerning environmental protection. Abestos. Abestos is a mineral fiber 
fiber that has been used commonly in a variety of building construction materials for insulation and as a fire retardant. Since the EPA has banned several asbestos, bestos or bestos, asbestos products and manufacturers have voluntarily limited its use. Contractors presently will most often find this material in older homes where it was used in pipe and furnace insulation. Asbestos shingles, millboard, textured paints and coating materials, and floor tiles. Exposure mainly occurs indoors as asbestos asbestos fibers are released. High levels of airborne asbestos can occur after asbestos-containing materials are disturbed due to cutting, sanding, or other remodeling activities. Improper attempts to remove this material can release asbestos fibers into the air, endangering individuals who come in contact with it. Workers who find asbestos on site should be trained to report the asbestos location but not touch it. Only individuals who have training and EPA certification for asbestos removal are allowed to handle this dangerous material. These specialists have learned the safe procedures to follow and the correct personal protective equipment to use when working with asbestos. Long-term exposure to asbestos through inhalation can result in lung disease called asbestosis. Exposure can also cause lung cancer and mesothelioma, which is a rare cancer of thin membranes lining the abdominal cavity and surrounding internal organs. Lead Hazards The EPA has undertaken a major role in addressing residential lead, ha- lead hazards. Lead is a highly toxic metal that has used has been used for many years in products found in and around homes. Lead exposure may cause a range of health and behavioral problems, including learning disabilities, seizures, and death. Children six years of age and younger are at most risk because their bodies are growing quickly. Since the 1980s, the EPA and its federal partners have phased out lead in gasoline, reduced lead in drinking water, reduced lead in industrial air pollution, and banned or limited lead used in consumer products products including residential paint states and municipalities have also set up programs to identify and treat lead poisoned children and to rehabilitate deteriorated housing. Many residential and commercial buildings built before 1978 contain lead-based paint. Lead from paint chips and dust can pose serious health hazards if not handled safely. Renovations that do not follow the safety requirement for handling lead can release lead from paint and dust into the air. Contractors should not use a belt sander, propane torch, heat gun, dry scraper, or dry sandpaper to remove lead-based paint. These actions create large amounts of lead dust and fumes. It is unlawful to fail or refuse to comply with the EPA regulations. Contractors may obtain the following pamphlet from the federal government, Lead Safety During Renovation, which summarizes EPA's rules and lead safe work practices. It's a long website name, but it's for the EPA thing. There are two types of penalties that might apply. A civil penalty up to $37,500 per day for each violation, and the criminal penalties up to twenty-five grand per day, and imprisonment for up to one year if the violation has been committed knowingly or willfully. 
Federal law requires that contractors provide information about lead to residents before renovating pre-1978 housing if more than two square feet of surfaces will be disturbed. Contractors are required to provide a copy of the Renovate Right pamphlet to owners and occupants prior to starting work in pre-1978 housing. Contractors must also provide the Renovate Right pamphlet to owners and operators of child care facilities and schools built prior to 1978 and provide information to parents or guardians of children under age that or age 6 that attend. As an alternative to delivery in person, the contractor may mail the lead pamphlet to the owner and or tenant. The pamphlet must be mailed at least seven days before renovation and documented with a certificate of mailing form from the post office. New rules for contractors. Beginning in April 2010, Contractors performing work that disturbs lead-based paint in homes, child care facilities, and schools built before 1978 must be EPA certified and follow specific work practices to prevent lead contamination. The EPA has made the following distinction between lead abatement and renovation. Abatement means that the work is designed to permanently remove lead-based paint hazards, including Contaminated dust and soil, and renovation means the work involves repairing, restoring, or remodeling the structure, but does not permanently eliminate the lead-based paint hazard. The National Lead Information Center, NLIC, provides information about lead hazards and their prevention. To receive information, contact NLIC on the internet or call the number about lead. Hazardous Waste Disposal the EPA regulates the management and disposal of hazardous waste under the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, RCRA. Congress passed RCRA in 1976 to ensure the hazardous waste is safely managed from generation to disposal. In 1984, Congress updated RCRA by prohibiting land disposal of certain hazardous waste, and as a result, the EPA developed the Land Disposal Restrictions, LDR, program. The EPA sets the treatment standards for all hazardous waste bound for land disposal. These treatment standards ensure hazardous waste is properly treated to destroy or immobilize hazardous chemical components before it is land disposed. Different types of solid waste are regulated as hazardous if they are included on specific EPA lists or if they exhibit one or more of the following characteristics. Catch fire readily corrode steel, explode readily, or have toxic components. The company that generates the waste must always inform the receiving treatment, storage, and disposal facilities of the status of the hazardous waste and ensure that it is handled safely. The LDR program impacts many small and large businesses that generate, store, transport, treat, and dispose of hazardous waste. If a business produces more than 220 pounds of hazardous waste or 2.2 pounds of acutely hazardous waste in a calendar month it must be properly identify it must properly identify the waste and determine if it has to be treated before land disposal underground storage tanks in the late 1980s the EPA established the office of underground storage tanks OUST to enforce federal laws that control environmental contamination from petroleum products underground storage tank UST Systems installed before December 22, 1988, had no protection against spills or overfills that were likely to corrode and leak. 
OUST mandated that by December 22, 1998, all underground storage tanks were to be prevented from contaminating nearby groundwater and soil. Existing UST systems were to be protected from spills, overfills, and corrosion or replaced with new systems incorporating such protection. OUST has recommended specific EPA methods for underground storage tank applications. States have the primary authority to implement UST requirements, and majority of the states still use these methods, but many states have developed their own methods for UST analysis.